mercy, all of you. Thanks for being here today. My title for you is this. God's, excuse me, God provides for the journey. It's my title for you this morning. God provides for the journey. Let me introduce the topic that I have for you this morning by saying this. Our nation needs a revival. Our nation needs a renewal. To put it shortly and succinctly, our nation needs Jesus. But as agreeable as that might sound to you, I can just as easily and just as heartily make this statement without any equivocation. Our churches need revival. Our churches need renewal. And beloved, our churches need Jesus. I don't mean the American Jesus, the diluted Jesus. I mean the biblical Jesus, the Jesus that is taught to us in Scripture. You see, our nation doesn't need Jesus more than you and I need Jesus. The Christian message, the message of the gospel, namely that God has done for sinners like you and me in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we could not do for ourselves is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is for believers too. And we can never forget that we need Jesus on our best day, the same amount that we need Jesus on our worst day. Church, we need Jesus. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says this. It's going to come up on the screen. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for how many people? All people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This is where we're missing the mark. This is where we're convincing the secular realm that our beliefs are not merely as important to us as we say they are. Because we say we believe this, but we live in a contradictory fashion. Or we say that ideologically, this is the principle you hold to. But then we tweet and post and vote in a way that's contrary to Christian principles. And so the world says, please tell me what you think about this issue. Pick the issue. And the only reason they ask us is because there are so many spineless Christians in the world who do not hold to Christian principles that the world has become convinced that the gospel means one thing for one kind of Christian and a different thing to another kind of Christian, but there's only one gospel. And the reason I'm introducing our talk this morning this way is because you need to hear this. God will provide for our journey. As it stands, our world is full of hypocrisy, injustice, preferential treatment, and absolute confusion over what is right and wrong, over male and female, and so much more. But I think we're guilty of much of this too. And there's a purification process that must come to God's church. A purification of holy purpose and a purification of holy power. The Apostle Peter said it like this, For the time of judgment to begin at the household of God has come. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
You see, there isn't one set of standards for us and another set of standards for the world. No, no. The reason the world asks you what you think about homosexuality, transgenderism, same-sex marriage, sex before marriage, or any other litany of issues is because they want to know if you really believe what you say you believe. Say amen if you're listening. I'll let you in on a little secret. They already know what you believe. The world already knows what you're supposed to believe. So every time a liberal pastor, a liberal Christian, a liberal whatever you name it, comes out, like our president does, who is a Roman Catholic who has been kicked out of his church because of his belief on murdering children from the womb, everybody goes, well, that's his, that's his belief. He can. But everybody knows that Roman Catholics and Protestants Do not believe in abortion. This is not a question. We believe that we were wonderfully made in the womb, in our mother's womb. This is scriptural. We believe that God has a plan and a destiny for us. And when we act in a way that is so irresponsible and shows nothing but disregard to the inevitable conclusion of a human sexual relationship, The world goes, what are you going to do with this kid you have now? Because you couldn't possibly say no to sex. Well, that's a given. That is a no-no. That is unthinkable. But the abortion thing, that's not a big deal. You know why the world keeps asking us what we believe about this, that, or the other thing? Because we've got so many so-called Christians who are telling the world Something that is contrary to this truth. But God provides for the journey. But God provides for the journey. I believe that the things that are unfolding in our country are unfolding according to God's wisdom and plan in part so that he can prune, John 15, so that he can prune his church, purify his church, It's amazing how many people love to be a part of the church movement when the church movement isn't being afflicted, isn't being ridiculed, isn't being criticized. But it's so interesting how quickly the numbers dwindle when the question becomes, you don't really believe what they believe, do you? I'm wondering how many of us are ready for that backbone that Jesus had. I wonder how many of us are ready for that backbone that that woman from the street in Luke chapter 7 had when she came in uninvited to worship Jesus while he had dinner with Simon the Pharisee because she would not be told no. I wonder how many of us have that backbone, are ready for that backbone. I wonder how many of us are going to say, I'm tired, my feet are weary, my soul is a little confused, but I know you will provide for the journey, God. I know you will help me buy my food with money, buy my drink with money, because I don't need anyone or anything, because on this journey, God, I believe you will provide. Do you believe it? That's the question. Do you or do you not believe it? The questions are going to come to you from the secular world. I think what God is asking is, do you or do you not believe me? My word. 
We shouldn't have to lean on policy because we have prayer. We shouldn't have to lean on secular ideas because we have sacred scripture. But too often we fall prey to the methods of men instead of simple obedience to the word of God. Let me tell you something. You will be unpopular. You will be unliked, disliked, excluded from some things because you hold to a principle that is biblical in the eyes of an age that will allow everything but Jesus. Don't punk out. Stand up. Realize that what God has for his people will always be so much more than the world could ever offer. I have five points to go over with you in these two chapters. And this is going to be a quickly paced message, so if you're a note taker, as you ought to be, then get your pen ready. I want us to walk away with some simple principles today that I believe will encourage our faith and convict our conscience. Granted, this is material that it's a little difficult. It includes homeless Hebrews, challenging commands, holy war, tribal annihilation, and more. But make no mistake about it, the historical narrative, church, is recorded here for our exhortation, for our encouragement. It is a historical account, but this historical account has some spiritual principles that I think you and I need to learn. Here are my five points for you today. First, the Lord's provision, the Lord's judgment, the Lord's strength, the Lord's instruction, and the Lord's plan. So the first point this morning is the Lord's provision. If you're ready, say amen. Amen. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, we see here, beginning in verse 1, the Lord's provision. Here we are, the journey, as it is stated in verse 1 of chapter 2. We turned, Moses says, and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. That is to say, they're beginning their wandering, right? They're circling. They're pointless meandering that is the consequence of faithlessness and unbelief. They won't enter the promised land because of this faithlessness and unbelief. Church, don't think for a second that unbelief is one option among many. I'm going to camp here for a second, and you're going to say, you've said so many things that were so much better. Are you really going to pause there? Yes. Let me say this again. Don't think that unbelief is one option among many. Unbelief is not an option among many. Unbelief is the root of every sin. You know why you sin in this? Because you didn't believe. You know why you sin like that? Because you didn't believe. Why do we sin? Because we don't believe God can satisfy us like the sin does. Why do we lie? Because we don't believe the truth is really as important as God says it is. And ultimately, we do all things. How many things? We do all things according to what we believe. Do you forgive like God has commanded you to? 
because you believe it's the right thing to do? Or do you harbor forgiveness because you believe you're justified? Are you merciful and humble as God calls us to be merciful and humble in view of his sovereignty and his authority? Or are you stubborn and obstinate because that's just the personality God gave you? Everything comes down to this. What do you believe? Verse 2, God's command comes. The Lord said to me, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northwards. And with that word, church, the people end their wandering and begin their final leg to the promised land. What we're going to see in our subsequent points this morning is going to summarize what this long and experienced journey had in store for them. But before we get there, let me tell you something about God's provision. Two things I want you to share, or I want you to see. They come into contact with another land, as is inevitable. This particular land was a land that was given to Esau, their brother, Verse 5 says, do not contend with them because I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as a, a, a parcel for the sole of the feet to tread on because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Now you see, it's not all about you. When God sends you on a journey, are you listening to me? You're going to bump into people and they're on a journey too. Believe it or not, I don't care what your grandmother told you, you are not the center of the world. You are not the best thing since sliced bread. You're just another sinner going on a journey were it not for the grace of God. Amen? When you bump into people along the way, always remember they are on a journey just like you're on a journey. And some of them are enjoying the blessing that God gave to them. If you bump into Esau, don't fight Esau. That's all history. I gave him this land. Yeah, but I want the land. It's not your land. How many of us sat at the kitchen bar or the dining room table said, why is God doing this for them and not for me? That's because your journey is different than their journey. And God is not your God, but not their God. God is everyone's God, amen? So when God is working in your life, do not be negligent to remember that while God is working in my life, he's working in other people's lives too. Perhaps one of the easiest matrixes in which to see this performed is the matrix of marriage. Unless you're married to somebody who's perfect like me. <laughs> Marriage is very difficult. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. Marriage is not difficult because God isn't good. Marriage is difficult because we have decided to do things our way. We've decided that our way is the right way because, after all, it's our way. And we've decided that when we're wrong understanding and compassion and patience should be extended to us because, well, it was our wrong. Why wouldn't 
understanding and compassion and patience be extended to us. By the way, don't you dare do something wrong or I will take the opportunity to tell you for a week in case you forget. Church, Esau and his people had a plot of land and it wasn't for the Hebrews. That was what God did in their life. While you're on your journey, God is going to provide for you. God is going to meet you where you are, but do not be negligent to remember that God is working in other people's lives too. Here are a couple of things to consider. First, they weren't completely destitute. They were not completely destitute. Verses 6 and 7 say, You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat. You shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink because the Lord your God. I love the possessive there. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. I love this verse. Hey, stupid. God knows. I'm talking to you. Somebody in here needs to hear this. God knows you're going through the wilderness. God doesn't. Yes, he knows. Yes, he does. Do not lock yourself in your mopey closet and throw yourself a dirge in a funeral party because you've had a hard week or a hard year or a hard decade. Listen to me. God knows. And God can provide. You have lacked nothing these 40 years, Moses says. There's something interesting to happen here, that happens here, that we need to be cognizant of. Something that is interesting. It's something that's interesting, and I want you to get this. During their time of wandering and discipline, there seems to have been a rededication of the people of Israel to the Lord. Now, I know you don't have to go to Sunday school or Bible fellowship for too long before you get downloaded to you this teaching. The people of Israel wandered 40 years because they blew it. Amen? Everybody knows that story. But what we don't often get is the entire picture, which is this. There seems to have been a rededication on the part of the Hebrews to God during this wandering And subsequently, God provides. Secondly, God still provided guidance through his word and through Moses. Amazingly, God is still God. God is still merciful. God is still loving. God is still steadfast. He's still good, even though we're evil. He's still loving, even though we're unloving. He's still patient. Even though Dimey is impatient. <laughs> it was a joke. Please, God. Da-da, boom. Okay. No, stay with me. Stay with me. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. You know when you get to your bed after that day. You know what day I'm talking about. You get to your bed that day and you go, why me? Why love me? I'm a horrible Christian. I'm the worst Christian I ever knew. And the reason is this, church. God cannot deny himself. And if you are genuinely in Christ, you're going to blow it. 
And you're going to have bad days and stressful days and days when you use an expletive and a pejorative and days when you kick the dog and days when you think thoughts that are unholy and ungodly and days when your behavior is garbage. And God is going to say, I'm not done with you. What I started, I'm going to finish. God is faithful and he won't deny himself. And that's why even though when we're on a journey of discipline and even though we bump up against people that we think, well, maybe we'll just uh, take a little land from them or take a little blessing from them, it's not your blessing to have. I'm working on you. You are not the center of the universe. Our work together is not done yet. Our greatest comfort and our greatest security is found in the fact that while we're imperfect and filled with faults, God is perfect and filled with faithfulness. Of course, this isn't allowance. This isn't permission. This isn't a let us sin more that grace might abound. This is not that. This is when I see how good you are to me, God, I want to be who you're calling me to be. Now, this leads us to our next point, which is the Lord's judgment. Stay with me here. We're going to pick up the pace because at this rate, we're not going to get out till Tuesday. So our first point is the Lord's provision. Our second point is the Lord's judgment. Now, far be it from us to neglect the fact that God is not only loving, but holy. Amen? And there are times, there are episodes when we see God loving and merciful and kind. And there are other episodes where we see God execute wrath and anger and judgment. And far be it from us to say God is one and not the other. Either way, either way. And this point is primarily found in verses 14 and 15. So if you'll focus your eyes on chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, I'll read them quickly with you. It says, And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea, remember that was sort of a focal point where there was abundant water. They go and they sort of wander around in a circle for 38 to 40 years, leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zerod, was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp and the Lord, as the Lord swore to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them. The hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. At this point, you're somewhat familiar with the context. We're only in Deuteronomy 2. It feels like we've been here for a while. But we're only in Deuteronomy 2, and we're still recapitulating the story. We're still retelling the story, which is to say God redeemed Israel from Egypt, but they were faithless. They were unbelieving. They weren't participating with him in this work of redemption. And as a result, God said, yeah, the next generation will go into the promised land, but these guys aren't. So they start to do what they are doing, which is wandering around this wilderness. The people of Israel are told not to contend, not to harass the locals while they're passing through. And guess what? They do it anyway? No, they don't. The word of the Lord comes to them through Moses, and Moses' word from the Lord is, that group over there, that's not your land, leave them alone. 
When you pass by, ask permission. Be kind, and if you need something, buy it with your money. I've provided for you. Are you hearing me, church? I don't care how hard it is. I don't care how difficult it is. I don't care how deeply under my judgment and discipline you are. I am still your God, and I have put money in your pocket. Don't mess with them. Don't mess with them. Don't mess with them. And the scriptures tell us as they uh, continue to move about the land, they obey the word of the Lord. You may recall this from the previous chapter, the end of, of chapter one, where it says they wanted to fight after they disobeyed God. And Moses said, the Lord told me to tell you, don't fight because you're going to lose. He's not with you. He's left. And they prayed to the Lord, and the Lord was silent. you remember that? They wouldn't answer the Lord. And then at the end of that section, it says that the Lord wouldn't answer them. This is what happens when you're disobedient. Yet, what we see in the second chapter is a sort of replay that is in fast forward. So we're getting this idea that while it started very poorly, we're seeing an improvement in behavior. But... The Lord's judgment has not been revoked. I'm going to share something with you, and I hope you'll listen. If the Lord makes a decision to place weight and discipline on you for your faithlessness and your unbelief, I pray and I hope that his judgment and discipline leads you to faith, leads you to obedience. But, say amen if you're listening. That doesn't mean he's going to revoke his discipline or judgment. We're no longer in Christianity 101 here. We're, we've got to put our big boy pants on for this theology. This is not now I lay me down to sleep. This is why, oh God, why? Where am I and where should I be? In this case, we see obedience Verse 5, don't touch or harass these people. Verse 9, don't touch or harass this people. Verse 19, don't touch or harass this people. And each time consecutively, the people of God obey. They're obeying God. They aren't to fight. And that's what's interesting. Instead of disobeying God, as they were in the beginning, now that they are under the weight of his discipline and judgment, they're obeying him. They're listening to him. They're following his Word. Now it seems that God's discipline is working because they've obeyed through this period of time. And in this chapter, we don't see any rebellious uh, behavior that's obvious. Moses doesn't describe a certain negative event that we sometimes read about as we go through these texts. And God isn't speaking against the people. On the contrary, when we see God speak to the people, he kind of says, I'm with you. I've provided for you. All the work of your hands has been successful. He's given his judgment, but it appears that for all intents and purposes, they're living up to it. Even some of the prophets, as we move forward in the Old Testament, look back on this period of Scripture with a sort of favorable perspective. One text says that God drew them into the wilderness so that he could speak tenderly to them. How beautiful is that? Why did God draw his people into a hard circumstance and a hard period of discipline so that he could speak tenderly? 
How many of us, when we start to get in a sort of debate or argument, our voices just go up and 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 up? And, 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 and we think, like, I'm going to win this because I'm the loudest in the house. Or I'm the loudest in the room. Or I'm the one with the microphone. The reality of the matter is, is God works with his people often in a different way. I'm going to discipline you, and you're not going to like it, but I'm going to speak nicely. Something maybe we can learn, amen? How about this text? It comes from the prophet Jeremiah. It's going to come up on the screen. It's a beautiful text about this particular season in the life of the people. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a guide, how you followed me in the wilderness. Did you get that? God is looking back at the time of discipline in the wilderness, and the prophet Jeremiah is saying, this is what God told me to tell you. He told me to tell you that he remembers your faithfulness in the wilderness. He remembers how you obeyed. In a land that was not sown, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Did Israel blow it? Yes. But God continued to remain faithful to them, and we see a shift in their behavior as a people. Church, the Lord's judgment is serious, and God's judgment might be on you, Christian. You may have God's discipline on you or your house right now, but please listen, this doesn't mean that God is against you. There's a difference between God disciplining you and God being against you. And it certainly doesn't mean that it will last forever because discipline is meant as a momentary correction. It's not meant to last forever. I love the psalm. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It can become difficult when we're living outside of his will. Amen? Some of us are in the circumstances that we are in right now because... During a season of our life, we lived outside his will. The reality of the matter is most of us know that very well, all too well. And I'm sure that with every death along the journey, I'm sure with every tired step that they took in that wilderness, there was a reminder of just how serious sin is and just how serious God is about disciplining his people toward holiness. But gradually, the people became to realize that every day is a new day. And, and, and we seem to see a change in their attitude and in their behavior. They start to be, be obedient to God. And I love what Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. In Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, Jeremiah writes, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But this is going to change. The call of God to the people of God is going to change. Finishing this section under the Lord's judgment, if you look at verse 25... 
Verse 25 finishes the section with these words, this day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. They're obeying, they're listening God, Excuse me, they're listening to God, they're obeying and listening to God's word, they're following God's instruction, and now they're enjoying the benefits of his provision and guidance. They're not the laughingstock anymore of the world. Now, because they have been obedient to God, God is saying, I'm going to go before you and establish your reputation before you get there. It goes from don't harass these people to they're going to be quaking in their boots when they hear that you're on the way. Let's go to our third point, the Lord's strength. That leads us to our third point, the Lord's strength. Let me ask you this question, church. When's the last time that somebody began to get nervous when they heard that you were coming? When's the last time somebody got nervous because the Holy Spirit was so potent in your life? The Holy Spirit was so powerful in your life. The Holy Spirit was so active and engaged in your life. Your obedience put you in such a pose or such a perspective that you were wise and you were intelligent and you were gifted and you were strong so that when you walked into a room, everybody said, here they come. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. We're looking at God's strength, which he is putting in his people to such an extent that when his people are moving in a direction, the people who are in that direction are saying, oh, no. Let me share some scriptures with you, three in particular. One psalm, one proverb, one prophet. Psalm 18, verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Looking for a verse to memorize? It's an easy one. You could have it done by the time we leave here today. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Proverbs 18, 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into him and are saved. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Up to this point, God has been explicit. If you need something, buy it with money. Do not fight. And now the tone has changed. God is saying, I'm going to prep the battle for you because now you're going to fight. It's a different approach They come to King Sihon in Heshbon, and he will not respect Israel's request to stay on the road as they pass through and buy anything that they might need. Unlike Moab, unlike Esau, he says no, and he picks a fight with the people of God. And I can tell you this, when God is on your side... I feel badly for the people who pick a fight with you. If God is with us, who can be against us? The Lord is our strength and our shield. Verse 33 says, The Lord gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons, 
and all his people. Church, God isn't aiming at making his people weak. God is not aiming at making his people debilitated. God is not aiming at setting his people up for failure. God is aiming at equipping and strengthening his people for obedience and for success. If we aren't experiencing success in our life, whatever that success might look like according to God's will for us, it's our fault, not his. In his commentary on this section of Deuteronomy, Peter Craigie offers this, Victory was assured from the start because the Lord was with his people participating in human history. Let me ask you a question. What battle would you engage in if you knew you could not lose? What would you endeavor to accomplish if you knew the victory was certain? I hope your wheels are turning and and cognitively you're searching and seeking aspects of your life to say, what have I quit on? What have I given up on that I could win and be victorious in because of God's strength and promise? Church, I want you to know that his promise to the people of Israel and his promise today are not different. They are one and the same promise. God is with his people for their success. If we are not successful in our life, in the things that God has called us to, that's not God's fault. That's our fault. I'm going to say this, and I want you to hear me when I say it. We are to go to war for the things of God. The people of God are to go to war for the things of God. I don't think we fight enough. And I'm not being belligerent. I'm not being abrasive. I'm surveying the scope of the world today, and what I see are ungodly people who are loud and obnoxious and unapologetic, and Christians who are so afraid that they're going to breach the verse which says, turn the other cheek, they don't say anything about truth, and they don't say anything about what is right. We've gone so far the way of gentleness that now we never look strong. And there ought to be a good balance in our lives. Follow me with this. When they went to war, they took no prisoners. They took no prisoners. Now follow me here because I think we need to go to battle about some things. Yes, we are told in Matthew 5.38 to turn the other cheek. Yes, we are told in Romans 12.18 to live peaceably. Yes, we are told by Paul to Timothy that a servant of the Lord should not be quarrelsome. Yes, we are told in 1 Peter 3.11 that we should pursue peace. But as these verses are true and should be completely accepted, we can't ignore other verses that tell us the opposite, like We are supposed to fight the good fight of faith in 1 Timothy 6.12. That we are to contend for the faith in Jude 3. That we're soldiers for Christ in 2 Timothy 2.4. That we're in a spiritual war 
in Ephesians 6.12. And consider Luke 22, verse 36, where Jesus says, If you have two cloaks, but you do not have a sword, sell a cloak and buy a sword. Let me quote the Apostle Paul. It's going to come up on the screen who wrote this cogent statement in 2 Corinthians. He says, The weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive. How many thoughts? Every thought captive to obey Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5. The only way that you can successfully do that, church, is if your mind is renewed. If your mind is not renewed, that verse means absolutely no sense to you. Again, while we aren't physically beating someone down, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want Ray to say, Joe, I need you to come out front. And when I walk out front, you know, Tom Vassell has somebody down on the floor and he's, he's beating him with Jimmy. You know, he's got Jimmy and he's just beating the guy. And Tom is saying, I'm trying to tell him he needs to listen to the gospel. That's not what we're saying, obviously. But we are still beating down. Thoughts, arguments, opinions that are anti-Christ, anti-God. You don't have to be a jerk to do it. You can just say, well, that's not what the Bible says. Well, why don't you think like this? I don't think like that because that's not what the Bible says. Christian, we are in a war. And the greatest commodity isn't guns, gold, silver, cattle, or property. It's souls. We are in a war engaged with the hope of victory for the sake of souls. And we're against an enemy who isn't afraid to use charm and seduction and manipulation to damn people to eternity in hell without apology or hesitation. My question for you is simple. Are you as passionate about seeing souls delivered from hell as Satan is seeing souls damned to hell? The Lord is our strength. Fourth, the Lord's instructions. They come in verses 12 through 22. Very quickly, I'm going to share some of these instructions with you, and I'm going to jump straight to what I want to share with you because I know I'm running a little long today. I keep looking at my watch, and I left it on the charger because when I pulled it off the charger, it was dead. You ever have one of those days? So I have this giant clock back there, so I'll just look at that. 12.08. Ready. When this comes to a conclusion... This traveling, this battling, 
And they are poising themselves to inherit the promised land. God tells them to stop and to camp there, and he gives them some instructions. I'm going to read it to you very quickly. In chapter 3, verse 12, it says, When we took possession of the land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Arior, and which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, half of the hill to Gilead and its cities, etc., 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 going down. And then jumping over to verse 18, I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over, armed before your brothers, the people of Israel, only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know how much you have, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan River. Now, I want to share this point, the Lord's instructions that are coming to his people here, because I want to share with you two quick points, and these are important points. In verses 12 through 16, that first section of scripture, what we see first is there are boundaries for the tribes. There are boundaries for the tribes. The Lord assigns boundaries to various tribes for the conquered land. They didn't put out a vote. They didn't ask people which parcel of land they preferred. God decided. God gave these people boundaries. Now let me say this. God decides our destinies, church. God decides our destinies. Mine isn't yours, and yours isn't mine. But what you and I can do, regardless of what God's mission or destiny in our life might be individually, is fulfill our calling well. Amen? What is your boundary? Where is your boundary? I don't need you to tell me how to occupy my space. I need you to occupy your space. This is God telling the people, this is your plot of land. Where, where's, where's the Levites' plot of land? Not your business, my decision. That's what God is saying. And so it is in our life, church, when God gives us a purpose, a destiny, a responsibility, those are the boundaries in which we live our lives, and those boundaries are not mine, and mine are not yours. Let me give you a little bit of background. If your spouse... You are to be the best spouse that you possibly can be to the husband or wife that God has given you. Don't tell me how to be a husband to Dimey. Don't tell Dimey how to be a wife to me. Your boundary is your spouse. Mind your business and do a good job. Children, Your greatest responsibility as a young person is to obey your parents. That is your responsibility. You don't have to like them. You don't have to agree with them. You just got to respect them. And if you don't like their plan and you don't like their method and you don't like their mode of doing things, 
then start planning your life now so that when you are legally an adult, you can say, I'm going to go make my boundary somewhere else. But don't move out on your father and mother's dime talking about I'm going to make another boundary. There's an umbilical cord there called money. And that means your boundary doesn't belong to you. It's your parents. If you're 18, if you're 20, if you're 23, and you can't take the responsibility of being respectful and honorable to the people who have authority over you, go make your own boundary. Amen. Rhapsody doesn't have to respect me like she respects her parents. Savannah doesn't have to respect me like she respects her parents. Kai doesn't have to respect me like he has to respect his parents. I'm not their parent. That would be a violation of my boundary as it would be a violation of their boundary. So many of our problems, church, are you listening? We occupy other people's boundaries. What we need to do is mind our own business and do the work that God has called us to do in our boundary. Amen? Make your marriage the best marriage you've ever seen. Don't worry about everybody else's. Make your relationship with your children the best relationship any parent has ever seen. Don't worry about anybody else. Do not exasperate your children. But bring them up with the instruction and discipline of the Lord. That's what the Bible says. Occupy your boundary. If you're an employee, do your work in a work that glorifies God and makes everyone around you say, that's a good employee. But second, there's not only boundaries for the tribes. There are also boundaries for the family. So we've already explored this topic a little bit by way of these boundaries so that we could have a glimpse. But what I want you to see in verses 18 through 22 is the fact that the women weren't going to fight. Only the men of valor. Now this is a fearful thing for me today. Because presumably the younger men stayed behind and the women and children with the women and children. The livestock obviously stayed behind. So all of those things were safe and the men of valor went out for the battle. Today, I don't know how many men of valor there would be to go out to the battle. I've said this before and I've said it again. As men, we've, had, we've seen a lot of examples of what it's like to start as a man. But we have not seen many examples of what it's like to finish as a man. We look up to things like the NFL or NBA or actors in Hollywood, and the reality of the matter is all of those people are very skilled at a craft, but beyond the craft, most of them are just shells of people. And the reality of the matter is we need men to grow men. We need women to grow women. This is the boundary of families. The Bible says that the older men should pass down their knowledge to the younger men and that the older women should pass down their knowledge to the younger women. And the reality of the matter is, and hear me when I say this, we lose the majority of our people at age 18. Visibly. 
But in reality, we lost them a lot earlier than that. The difference is that when they move out and go to college or they move out and get their own apartment, we lose them visibly because we never really had them before that. And part of that is because preaching is poor. It's unrelatable to young people. There are certain things that you're not allowed to say which ought to be said and ought to be taught. We have this problem with marriage. We have this problem in youth. We cannot at all talk about sex, at all. It's like taboo when it's all over the Bible. And then when they get married, we say, okay, now go have fun, be fruitful and multiply. And we have not raised them in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. The devil did not make sex. God made sex as a crowning act of marriage. And the world has made it an identifying marker. And it's not an identifying marker. It's something that we enjoy as a blessing. Amen? Your marriage is healthy. and Your marriage is whole. The sex is absolutely incredible. That's what it's meant to be. But sex was never meant to be the relationship. Sex was never meant to be the thing. It's something that blesses the hard work that goes into making a relationship healthy. But the world is not saying that. You can have any social media app you want. You can name it. And it's basically pornographic. Everything is sex now. So we come to church and we don't talk about it at all, but the kids get inundated with the topic out there. So instead of helping them understand what is godly and what is ungodly, what is healthy and what is unhealthy, we just don't talk about it at all. And then when they become 18, they go to college or something else, they meet somebody who wasn't sheltering them. And then they go off and they live the life that we never wanted them to live because we failed to teach them. Or we did something stupid, like say, don't act like that in church, but act like that out there. The reality of the matter is, is the Lord has given us instructions and he has given boundaries for us to occupy. And we must, as families, occupy these boundaries if the next generation is going to have any men. If the next generation is going to have any women. Some stayed behind, but the men went to fight for the kingdom. Dad, mom, do not shelter your son. Strengthen your son. Tell your son you have expectations of him. What's more, tell your son that God has expectations of him. Dad, mom, do not shelter your daughter. Tell your daughter that you and God have expectations of them. Stop making their life as easy as it possibly can and instead provide for them so that they can be successful like God provides for you so that you can be successful. There are no excuses in the kingdom of God. The reason we fail is because we're occupying the wrong boundary. Occupy the boundary that God has given. Finally, the Lord's plan. The Lord's plan. This is a difficult sentiment. This is a difficult sentiment. 
Moses says, the end of chapter 3, beginning in verse 23, I pleaded with the Lord at that time. After the Lord gave boundaries to everybody and said the men in valor are going to fight, the young guys are going to stay back, protect their moms and their sisters and the cattle. Everybody's got their own parcel of land. Everybody's got boundaries. Okay, boundaries are a good thing. Got it. Now that that's come to a close, Moses says, God, can I talk to you? (laughs) At this time, Moses says, I pleaded with the Lord, and I said, oh, Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. And what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such mighty works and acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he would not listen. And the Lord said to me, that's enough from you. Do not speak to me on this matter again. How do you proceed when the Lord's answer for whatever reason, in this case, discipline, is no. Do you tell him, well, then fine, I'm not going to be obedient to you anymore. Do you do the proverbial toddler tantrum? where you sort of throw yourself down because you didn't get your way and you beat your hands and fists on the tile in aisle 13 for everyone in Publix to think you're the worst parent that's ever parented a child. Remember what I said earlier in this message. The root of every problem is unbelief. Do you or do you not believe that God's answer is what's best for you. I'm not going to answer that question. That's a horrible question. I'm asking you. I don't want to answer that question. I'm terrible at this part of Christianity. I'm so bad at it that if God didn't say no to me sometimes, I have no idea where my life would be today. There are so many things that I thought, headlong, here I go, and God says, no. And upon reflecting, I say, thank God for his no. God's plan is always the best plan. Sometimes his plan hurts. Sometimes it makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes it challenges us in ways we never expected God to challenge us But God will not negotiate on right and wrong. And God spoke a word to Moses after his disobedience, which was, you will not enter the promised land. And here we have a glimpse of one of the most, if not the most, effective leaders in human history, Moses. And he says, essentially, if if I can just put this in the vernacular, Dad, are you sure I can't go? And dad calls and he says, (laughs) 
Yes, I'm sure. Moses' prayer is full of good theology, by the way. It's a beautiful prayer, isn't it? Please, please, please let me go over and see the good land. I've been through so much. Please, Moses says, please. And, and, and I've only begun to see how amazing you are, God. I, I, there's no God like you. There's no God mightier than you. The theology is wonderful. The humility is there, Lord. I'm pleading with you. Please let me go see the land. And God says, I'm not going to talk to you about this anymore. But God is good. Amen? And in his mercy, and in his gentle way of, of giving unto someone who he loves dearly, someone the Bible calls God's friend, Moses, and yet not violating his oath to Moses because of his disobedience. Look at what it says. The Lord was angry in verse 26 with me because of you, and he would not listen to me. The Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me about this matter again. Verse 27, go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes west, north, south, and east, and you can look at it with your eyes. It's just this small blessing that God gives to Moses so that he can at least see the blessing, although he isn't permitted to go in to the blessing. I want to read James chapter 4. Verses 13 through 17. James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17 say this. Ah, there they are on the screen. You can read it with your eyes. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Every now and then I send out an email. Well, I send a few a week, but sometimes I'll send something out that, that requires an RSVP, and, and Juan and Cecilia will answer, and they will say, we will be there, Lord willing. Because we really don't know what tomorrow holds, do we? We will be there, Lord willing. What will you do tomorrow? Lord willing.